0: The Energy Gang is brought to you by C-Power. C-Power has been helping organizations like yours chart a path to energy's future. Since the first open energy markets were established at the turn of the 21st century, we are going through some uncertain times right now. How is it going to play out? Well, not many people know, but the energy experts at C-Power are going to help your organization build a unique bridge to that future, whatever it looks like. Visit the slash future to learn how seapower can help you across the bridge to energy's future. From Green Tech Media, this is the Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions about the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Stephen Lacey, a contributing editor at GTM. Welcome to the show. This week, how coronavirus could accelerate or decelerate the energy transition. Major players create an oil shock amid a pandemic. Economic gears grind to a near halt. Meanwhile, the climate crisis is not going to wait. So we're going to cover what's happening in three parts. First, what's happening in oil and gas and renewables. Then how does this change the energy transition and our path for decarbonization? And then finally, what does a green stimulus look like? If we truly are going to pump money back into economies around the world and into the U.S. economy, how do we do that in a climate-friendly way? Uh, Jager Shaw is with us from bethesda maryland i know where you are this week jigger because you can only be at home
1: <laughs> there's no other place i'd rather be
0: how are you holding up over there
1: we're all right we've got some uh, stragglers from new york city that we we're boarding here in uh in the bethesda household and uh so we're um we're one cohesive unit here uh trying to figure out how to homeschool our children
0: Jigger is the president of Generate Capital, of course. Catherine Hamilton is our other co host. She is in Arlington, Virginia, also at home. How are things going over there?
2: It's going pretty well. So far, no one in our immediate family is sick, although some of our friends have it. So, not sure how that's all going to pan out. And I have teenagers who are starting official distance learning that their school has set up a pretty sophisticated system, one of whom has been wanting to get on the system for three days, and the other one would just assume it not ever happen.
0: Are, are you going to have to do the homeschooling?
2: I mean, they have a program set up with their school where they're going to be busy for three to four hours a day uh, directly connecting with all of their teachers.
1: That's pretty amazing.
2: Yeah, they have, a, they have a parochial school, so it's not the public school system. I'm not sure how other schools are set up, but our school has uh, – some pretty creative ways of doing it.
0: So how are you all managing the education piece with the family piece with the work piece? Catherine, how are you balancing it?
2: So I've been able to really set aside time for all of my conference calls because so much of my time is spent on the phone and email anyway. And then in some of those breaks in between, I'll like get the kids out to play street hockey or walk to the park or something to get them outside and get some fresh air. Jigger, how are you balancing it all?
1: Yeah, I think it's similar. You know, in general, I'd say that the biggest thing that is on my mind these days is how, like, the dynamics of the household work, you know, and just trying to be more intentional about making sure that my wife doesn't take on more of the responsibilities than I am and, like, and that we're all sort of pitching in. Um, So I think that part's the hardest part to, to work through.
2: Yeah, that's really interesting because my husband is like the stay home. He works from home. And so having me here is kind of crowding into his space. Uh, But (laughs) we're definitely figuring that out, too.
0: Well, the good news for this show is that we've been remote recording for so many years that we've got this all dialed in. So nothing changes for us. I do want to quickly ask you about... The stuff that you both are working on, because it's an indicator of how things are shifting on the ground. So, of course, uh, Jigger's organization, Generate Capital, is bringing together and financing all kinds of different clean energy projects. Catherine's firm is working on Capitol Hill to, you know, talk with lawmakers and lobby lawmakers to, uh, you know, embrace clean energy in its different forms. So how is that changing? And how will it change for the foreseeable future? Because we really have no idea how long we're going to be stuck in our homes for. Uh, Catherine, what's the state of play for politics right now?
2: So right now, the Senate is in session. I I am very curious how this is going to kind of play out because a lot of the Senate is in the older population category. And I'm kind of waiting for the other shoe to drop. A lot of staffers have tested positive, and I just worry that a lot of members of Congress and senators are going to get sick. Um, And so I'm not sure how that is going to happen. I mean, from my standpoint, I can still do calls and emails with people. You know, we're working on certainly things that are for the longer term but but for example the select committee on the climate crisis has postponed their report that they were supposed to release at the end of March we're not sure when that's going to happen and now people are kind of shifting a little bit to what a stimulus could look like that we can talk about in a bit but another huge chunk of what i do is state policy and state utility commissions are starting to switch to online you know there are some states where you have to deliver uh, filings by hand in person, and so by some, horse, yes, by
0: <laughs> Pony Express. By Pony
2: Express. <laughs> and so, some of those are saying, Okay, we can do those by, virtually. Some, uh, like California Public Utility Commission, is doing everything online now. All of their hearings and everything are going to shift to be webinars, so that's good. Um, so, it actually allows us to have much more remote access to. Um, to venues that maybe it would have been harder because we would have had to travel to get there.
0: Okay. So people are trying to find creative workarounds, but clearly in-person interaction is really important for the kind of work you do. So it seems like still on whole, it's bad for you, Catherine.
2: Yeah, I think on whole, it is very disruptive and jarring not to be able to have face-to-face meetings. Things are in such flux right now, and, and you don't know when you're reaching out to someone if, they, if they're sick or if they're not sick, if their staff are available. So it, it's bad it, on the whole. Um, it's just that people are trying to find ways to cope and to get things done regardless.
0: Jigger, what about you on the project finance side? How are the gears grinding to a halt for you, or are they?
1: Yeah, you know, it's a—it's uh, one of those things where I agree completely with Catherine's point here, which is that this is bad and hard for everyone. I mean, in terms of, you know, people working from home, people figuring out childcare, we've got a lot of uh, remote systems that we're testing, we've shut down our office, we've got a lot of people in the field, right? We run anaerobic digesters and the bacteria die if you don't feed it food. And so you know, we've got people still working on our digesters um, and a skeleton crew to make sure that they continue to keep going. Um, And so that scares me. Um, And so there's a lot of stuff like that. But on the other side, I mean, the fact that we've raised a lot of money and we've now are prepared to put the money to work puts us in a better position than most. And so I, you know, thank my lucky stars on that. Yeah, closed, closed
0: it just in time. Well, we're here to parse the significance of this very fast-changing economic landscape for clean tech and the environment and also for fossil fuels. So we're going to ask, what is actually going on here? Let's talk first about the practical impacts in fossil fuels and renewables, and we'll go over to oil and gas first. So we've got some pretty serious drama going on within OPEC. A few weeks ago, it was clear that a pandemic was coming, even if the U.S. government hadn't quite embraced that. Uh, And governments with a large stake in oil revenue could see a demand for fuel was going to fall and fall rapidly. They desperately wanted to keep the price up amid that falling demand, but that would mean cutting production. One of the oil giants, Russia, is angry at the U.S. over sanctions and preferred to put Texas shale drillers out of business rather than cut its own production. When it came time to negotiate with Saudi Arabia over production limits, Russia refused to cooperate And that is a high stakes game for Russia. It can't afford for prices to sink too low, but we're seeing oil prices at below $30 a barrel right now. Very risky. So what happened here and why are we seeing this game of chicken between Saudi Arabia and Russia? And what are the macroeconomic consequences? Jigger, what's going on here? So
1: for a long time... uh you know, the oil markets have been run by cartels. The first cartel, people don't really realize, was the Texas Railroad Commission back sort of in the 60s and 70s. But, you know, then you had OPEC, and OPEC came together, the oil-producing, exporting countries. And um, and then you had uh, OPEC+, Plus, right, which includes Russia and a couple of other folks, Mexico. And um, this is basically proved to be very fragile, right? And so when they all got together in a meeting... Everyone said, let's go around the table and cut some oil. Uh, 1.2 million barrels a day is what they got you know, around the till. And they asked Russia for 300,000 barrels additional. And Russia just said, no, we're not going to do it. And so then Saudi Arabia said, well, if you're not going to play the same game we are, then I'm going to take my toys and go home. And Saudi Arabia immediately announced that they were going to sell their oil for an $8 a barrel discount to Brent to anyone who would buy it to gain market share. And then the Russians started doing the same thing and the UAE is doing the same thing. And now it's a bloodbath. I mean, everyone is basically in their corners trying to uh, figure out, you know, how to, you know, like throw the, the you know, the game board that they were playing in the air higher. So, Catherine, you've been
0: talking to a bunch of oil experts about what happened, what they say.
2: Yeah. So this is really unprecedented for OPEC. So OPEC is 11 countries, including Saudi Arabia, and then OPEC plus includes Russia. So Russia has really been working against the full OPEC cadre of countries. And it's unprecedented, because not only we have a flood of supply, but a price collapse, but there is also simultaneously a demand collapse, because generally, when prices are low, demand increases. So you, But right now, goods aren't shipping, commuters aren't traveling, air flights are not happening. So the demand side is not there. And it does not look like it is going to be resolved. The pricing issue will be resolved until at least the June meeting of OPEC. So we
0: have mostly uh, a North American audience here. And I think a lot of American folks are wondering what happens to the oil and gas industry here Uh, The U.S. has become the largest liquid fuels producer in the world because of the shale boom. We saw a price collapse in 2014, 2015, which put a lot of shale drillers out of business. Uh, And a lot of the private equity firms bought those companies back up and propped them back up. But still, we see a lot of vulnerable uh, shale drillers that are propped up by Wall Street, and their fate is uncertain. Jigger, what's going to happen to the oil and gas drillers here in the U.S.?
1: Well, you know, I think we, as Catherine said, are really in, you know, unfamiliar territory here. You know, in terms of where the oil price shakes out, I think the oil price probably goes down from here even further, right? So it could be that oil actually touches $20 a barrel because we're going to continue to flood oil while demand gets shut in from the coronavirus. Separately, most of the shale drillers really need $30 oil just to, you know, pay some bills. And so as oil prices go below $30, many shale oil companies are going to say it's not worth pumping anymore. And so, so you're going to start to see some volume contraction. I think it'll be pretty slow just because it's hard for the shale guys to come to that conclusion. But I think it's going to come down the other piece I would have people look at is the macro, which is what feeds the shale oil industry in the United States is high yield debt, otherwise known as junk bonds. And I think when you look at what the Federal Reserve is announcing right now, which is not only cutting interest rates to zero, but also that they're going to buy 700 or 500 billion dollars worth of bonds in the marketplace, I think that they are trying to figure out a way to send a signal that they want the shale drillers to continue to have access to debt. And this is where I think that the, you know, renewable energy industry hasn't spent a lot of its time is trying to figure out how to get the attention of the Federal Reserve and others, where, you know, I think the oil industry is in pretty close contact with these kinds of institutions.
0: So the three of us obviously follow this story very closely. If you want to hear a really good conversation with, um, Experts who are really deep in oil and gas specifically. There's a good podcast that we all listened to before this show from the Columbia Energy Exchange and Jason Bordoff talk to uh, Halima Croft, Amy Myers, Jaffe, and Bob McNally about what's going on on in the international stage with oil price dynamics and these fights within OPEC. So I, I recommend that conversation, but we will certainly do our best to follow this piece of the story and the long-term implications for decarbonization as well, which we will get to in the next part of the conversation. First, we pivot to renewables and clean tech broadly. In January... We started hearing pretty significant warnings from major manufacturers on the solar and wind side that they were going to face these constraints coming out of China, and certainly uh, the the Chinese market is so fundamental for the supply chains of battery companies, wind manufacturers, solar panel makers, and uh, that all you know these these factories came to a grinding halt. Uh, many of them were just, they just stopped production entirely or scaled way back. And that is starting to change finally. So we could see these supply constraints start to ease up, at least out of China. The question is what happens in in Europe next. Uh, but Jigger, how did that story play out? How were supply chains impacted? And is that easing at all?
1: Well, I think it's important to note that Supply chains have been disrupted for the better part of two and a half years. So it's not like this is um, you know, something that people hadn't prepared for. Well, what do you mean? We've had tariffs on solar panels. We've had threats of tariffs on all sorts of other equipment like electric buses and other things. And so I would say the largest players in the renewable energy sector have been studying their options, whether they can procure equipment from India, whether they can procure equipment from China, Malaysia, Singapore, Taiwan, etc. And so, so I think that while there's been real disruption in the supply chain for the better part of, you know, three months, Um, I don't think that the renewable energy industry was caught flat-footed. They had already hired experts to help advise them on how to deal with these kinds of supply chain issues. And many folks had actually ordered equipment for the construction start piece of the 30% tax credit coming down. So there's been not pandemonium or panic yet in the solar and wind industries. But I do think that they'll start getting affected if the ramp up doesn't happen quickly uh, sometime in June or July.
2: And I think some of the dynamic is that some of the companies in Asia sent force majeure notices, which is like, Act of God. It's something we can't control on some of their supplies, and what that could do is delay projects. And delaying projects is really critical to wind, especially because their um, production tax credit expires in twenty twenty one, and it's really important for them to get these projects online. Um, and then also the the investment tax credit for solar is already phasing down, so there are some policy constraints on one end that any delays on the supply chain end will be impacted by. So
0: are these companies going to get relief from the IRS, Catherine, if they have these deadlines that they can't meet? Because they're under such pressure.
2: Well, I think we would have to extend those tax credits, and I think that's definitely a conversation that everybody is having now. Is look, we can't get these projects potentially can't get these projects built in time, um, and our investment and PPAs were based on being able to get these tax take advantage of these tax credits. And so, you know, hopefully they'll be able to extend those to allow companies and all their investors to be able to and and customers (laughs) to get credit.
0: So, Jigger, just one more question on the manufacturing side. It doesn't sound like there's the same level of uh, alarm as in like, the automotive sector or in consumer electronics. Uh, you, there may be some elasticity.
1: Yeah. I think the thing that we worry about when we think about sectors is whether people have to lay people off or whether folks are – Furloughed or like some of their hours get cut back, and I'd say that what we're experiencing right now are delays. Right for at least for the next six to twelve weeks, people are not constructing projects just you know out of an abundance of caution for the health of their workers. But once that ends, things will start coming back. I think supply chains will start getting filled up. We are concerned about getting permits, getting you know, utility folks to inspect projects to get, you know, like uh, COD and mechanical completion milestones. And so I do think that there are um, real challenges that are going to be pushing projects into 2021. So I'm not taking that off the table. I'm just saying that we're not in a situation where our industry is shut down and we're laying off workers.
2: Yeah, Jigger, my across the street neighbor, has been having solar installed on his roof all week. Nice. And uh, it seems like that's the kind of thing that can happen because there are like two or three guys. They're up there, they're apart from each other. Um, you know, they have all this gear on and they're not intersecting with other parts of society right now. So, in, of course, as you walk around the neighborhood, I see construction continuing, construction workers continuing because they're in smaller groups. And so I feel like some of the field work can continue. And you're exactly right that it's the Like waiting in line to get your permit at the county courthouse would be problematic, but the actual work may continue. But let's be
0: serious here. Uh, Governor Andrew Cuomo was just on The Daily podcast this morning, and he said public health officials are telling him that they're 45 days out from the peak of what's happening in New York. We've barely begun to scratch the surface of what's going to happen. And we're already seeing shelter in place orders in the Bay Area, in the Northeast. Uh, Construction has been ordered to stop in Boston. All of a sudden, the cranes are not operating. The houses getting flipped in my neighborhood have stopped. Uh, We're starting to see a very serious next level halt to economic activity and to movement. And so then that starts to impact workers in the field. And it's not just going to be in coastal dense cities. It'll probably be in cities uh, and areas around the country. So thinking through that scenario, which is very likely, how will that start to impact the way projects are developed? I mean, does it just put a complete halt on everything?
1: Well, look, it all depends on how people take this, you know, COVID-19 a pandemic seriously, right? Think about it. If you've got an entire 80% of the population that gets infected, which is what Imperial College is now saying is likely to occur in the United States, and 1% of those people die, that's 3 million people. Could you imagine 3 million Americans dying? I don't think constructing renewable energy projects are going to be top of mind for most governors or officials or anybody else if that many people are in hospitals, right? And that's why everyone's got to stay at home and flatten the curve and all that stuff. But I think that, that once we figure out how bad this really is and where the hospitals are and how short we are on ventilators and all that stuff, then I think the renewable energy industry can play a very important role in terms of ramping this economy back up, because we're ready to go. And we have billions of dollars of shovel-ready projects. But right now, I think everyone is, you know, for a good reason, hunkered down trying to figure out how to protect their families.
0: Uh, And Jigger, you referenced a report that just came out in the last few days looking at projections, Uh, for what could happen here in the U.S., and that appears to be what influenced the the president's change in tone and to get him to take it more seriously uh, many weeks late, but still taking it very seriously. And point taken. I mean, I agree. If if we're going to be facing what uh, I think many public health experts believe is necessary to stem this epidemic in in the U.S. and the pandemic worldwide, then we won't be thinking about whether or not we execute these projects in the short term. Um, And that question about what happens in the long term is a really good segue into our final topic. So we will get to that. The last piece of this is about long-term deal making, because these conferences that we all go to are really crucial for building relationships, laying the groundwork for signing long-term deals. And they are extremely influential and important. So I guess as we're shutting down face-to-face interactions and preventing people from sitting down over the table and, and hammering things out or visiting each other's factories or whatever it is, does that start to decrease the number of shovel ready projects or deals in place that could hinder renewable energy development long term when the economy picks back up.
1: Well, the answer is clearly yes, but I, but I think that I think we all should just make sure we're taking stock. So we've talked to a lot of our banks. These are major investment banks in, in New York, but also a lot of regional banks. They are telling us that the investment committees of their banks want more renewable energy. They don't want more oil, gas, and coal. They want more renewable energy. So when they think about a flight to quality, flight to quality means more renewable energy for them that's a big deal. And that was not true in 2008. And so I think we all just need to recognize that we are in a great position and that a lot of the finance sector actually wants to finance our projects. So now the question really becomes, you know, how do we get the little things done, the things that we used to go to conferences for. You know, you were experimenting with virtual conferences 12 years ago, Stephen. And so I think a lot of those are going to come back. I think you're going to start seeing people learn how to use Zoom and, and the breakout rooms in Zoom. You know, we've had a lot of our academic friends telling us how their virtual, you know, classroom settings have been working. And so I think many of us have not been diligent about how to use Slack and how to use Zoom and how to use all these you know, tools that are required to work from home effectively. But I think we're going to get a crash course in figuring it out.
2: Yeah, it's interesting to think about this from congressional perspective, since I spend so much time on the Hill talking with people. And my first fear, of course, is that there are all these Hill staffers that have been testing positive. And I really fear that a lot of members of Congress and senators, and let me tell you, the senators are not a young bunch of folks, are going to come down with with this illness and That, for me, is like the number one concern is that there will be so much disruption in our leadership in Congress that we won't be able to get things done. So they're trying to get a lot done now. And for example, they were able to pass the first phase of a stimulus, which was $8.3 billion for vaccine research and development test kits for coronavirus state and local assistance, medical supplies, etc. That was the first tranche. The second tranche. A hundred billion still has to get passed by the Senate, and that's for sick leave and extended unemployment. And of course, there's talk of this next tranche of a trillion dollars. And I think that it remains to be seen what's going to be in that, and then also if they're actually going to be around to get it done.
1: Well, that's the problem, right? Is if you start getting these deaths that are going to start, you know, coming up in the f- next few weeks, then you know, folks just might be. Uh, not capable of getting to where they need to get to in person to take these votes. And, you know, as we saw in the House, I mean, wasn't there one uh, House member who said that they wanted a recorded vote, which required everyone to come back in?
2: Yeah, it was Louie Gohmert from Texas who was in D.C., and you can pass something without a recorded vote by unanimous consent, so someone can go on the floor and say, I'd like to pass this, whatever this piece is, by unanimous consent, and it's a it's a voice vote, so you don't have to be there in person, um, you don't have to record the vote, and Gohmert was going to stop that by saying nay to the bill, and he backed off, because I think he saw that was this was not a smart thing to do, um, and now it is on Mitch McConnell to get it through the Senate, which they're trying to do this week. The House is out of session right now, and there's talk about everybody coming back next week to try to get more done. But I remain concerned that they're also putting themselves and their staff at risk by being in, in town.
1: For sure.
0: Well, coming up, we'll think about how all this influences our long-term prospects for decarbonization. Plus, we'll unpack the politics a bit more and think through... What an inevitable economic stimulus would look like if it were climate-focused. First, when it comes to making decisions about your organization's energy use and energy spend, you don't have a crystal ball. Boy, we could all use a crystal ball right now. Is it the right time to invest in distributed generation? If so, how do you use it to earn revenue in your region's energy market? Is your organization maximizing demand response earnings? Well, CPower is here to help you work through all of those questions. CPower has been helping organizations chart a path to energy's future since the first competitive energy markets in the U.S. were established at the turn of the 21st century. Their energy experts can work with your organization to build a unique bridge to energy's future, a bridge that spans the grid of the past crosses the transformations of the present and leads to a future that's not set yet. Visit the seapowerway.com/slash future to learn about how SeaPower can guide you across the bridge to energy's future. Okay, so I want to think through the long-term implications for this acute crisis we're facing right now. The unknown is what happens when markets calm down. Is demand for oil and gas going to pick up in the same way? What will demand for electricity look like now that more of us are working from home? Are there new factors like investor pressure, cheap renewables, and a more flexible work environment that put pressure on oil and gas producers? What are the prospects for dirty energy going to be then? So this bounce back, when we eventually get it, is it going to be a resumption of business as usual, or will the next recovery be different? Jigger and Catherine, you both talked about these shovel-ready projects that will help us, you know, accelerate the economic recovery. Talk about that a bit more. Catherine?
2: Yeah, so there's a really interesting piece by Fatih Birol, who is the executive director of the International Energy Agency on LinkedIn. And it's worth taking a look at because... This is, you know, he is not one of those guys who would normally be a lefty renewable energy advocate. But what he says is, look, we have a temporary CO2 reduction because we are not burning fuel right now. But this is the chance for us to now double down on investment in renewables and to remove fossil fuel subsidies while the price of fossil is so low. So he is actually advocating for clean energy. And I think there is potentially an opportunity to do that, but we have to be super intentional about it because that's not what people are going to want to do. Our governments are going to want to try to support industries that are suffering, and a lot of those are fossil ind- industries. So if we look at maybe we support payroll, but not support the industry, and instead focus on infrastructure, which has been a fever dream for a while. And hopefully we won't have the fever to accompany that dream. Um, But I think we could get something done with an influx of funds for, you know, transportation infrastructure, the transportation bill has to get done this year anyway, um, for the power sector, and also super importantly for communications like broadband, because so many people we're finding out right now are having trouble working and communicating from home because they don't have access to internet.
0: So, Jigger, twelve years on from the last financial crisis, uh, what is clean tech and renewable energy able to do differently than it wasn't able to do last time?
1: You know, it's a great question, and it's something I've thought a lot about recently, just because we've been people have been asking. um, and, And I'd say that one of the things is because the banking sector is so supportive of clean energy, a dollar goes a much farther distance today than it did in the era of stimulus, right? In the era of stimulus, we, we basically were like, if you put out a billion dollars, maybe we'll give you $2 billion worth of projects. But now if they put out a billion dollars, we'll give people $30 billion of projects, right? Because the loan guarantee programs don't cost that much. And that's what we need because a lot of these um, technologies are actually fully supported by the banking community today, like they weren't 10 years ago. And so we really just need them to be protected from a couple of very specific risks around credit party risks, right? People going bankrupt or around um, some of the late stage technology risks. So like things like fuel cell companies where some of the fuel cell manufacturers has stock prices have gone down a lot. And so you just want to make sure that if for whatever reason they go bankrupt, then you know, there's backup suppliers available and that kind of stuff. And so I think we're actually coming at this from a huge position of strength. And we have many, many more climate hawks in Congress today than we did 10 years ago.
2: Well, and all these technologies are so much cheaper than they were 12 years ago. So we can support fuel cells and wind and solar and battery storage in a way that we couldn't before. And I would point to Reed Hunt did a piece in Utility Dive this week on putting funding into a national climate bank like let's put a put a fund together where we can really deploy projects at scale to communities that really need it and where it's really cost effective
0: let's talk a little bit about the financial piece jigger there's a new kind of socially responsible investing that has taken hold. It is now guiding big firms like BlackRock. This environmental, social, and governance strategy (ESG) has become very popular amidst some of the world's biggest banks and investors. And clean tech is a certainly an important piece of that. Meanwhile, a lot of uh, private equity firms and other investors on Wall Street are losing their shirts uh, because of you know the oil and gas price drops and They're realizing, you know, once again, how risky fossil fuel investments are. You know, renewables have their own risks, but uh, the volatility in in fossil fuels can be quite dramatic. So I wonder does this shift the broad investment strategies or accelerate those investment strategies from the world's biggest money managers and banks?
1: Yeah. I mean, in the last episode, we talked a lot about generate capital and sort of what it does. I would say that the more. We have way more interest today than we did before into what I would call infrastructure investing, right? For a long time, people really understood stocks and bonds that kind of understood venture capital and maybe even private equity with all of Elizabeth Warren's education process in the last six to nine months. But people have a hard time really understanding what infrastructure is, right? So they understand a PPA, right? What's a power purchase agreement? Oh, a solar project gets 20 years of cash flows. But they don't know how to extend that to electric vehicle fleets or, you know, uh, waste to energy or recycling facilities and all that stuff. And what you're finding is, is that stuff is essential. Like while everyone's holed up in their house, they're still putting their trash out on Tuesdays and people are still collecting their trash and that trash still goes somewhere and that gets processed, right? And those people are still employed even during this shutdown, right? And so you're in a situation where infrastructure still is a place where your investments um, are uncorrelated with the rest of the stock market. Things like the water utility is still making sure water comes out of your faucet. The electric utility is still making sure that your um, lights come on, right? And so I just think that as people start to get more educated about what infrastructure looks like, they're going to be more confident around recognizing that investing in climate-friendly infrastructure is actually the next frontier.
0: Okay, so let's think through emissions drops. Emissions have dropped, I think, 25% in China. They're probably creeping back up right now. We will continue to see emissions uh, globally drop in the short term because of the halting of economic activity. And the question is, how will those emissions rise again? Will they just pop back up to where they were before? Or are there other structural factors that could change the trajectory? More of us are working from home. You know, I think that a lot of companies will realize that many of the positions that people hold can be do done from home, and you know, that's the equivalent of taking you know scaled across the the U.S. economy. That's the equivalent of taking millions of cars off of the road. Uh, so that could have a pretty serious impact on emissions and you know people could be working home for for some time the question is what does it do to electricity demand how does that change the way we're consuming electricity in the middle of the day and can we fill that with renewables or are we using coal and, and natural gas i think those are all big outstanding questions uh, and a lot of folks are you know spilling ink over whether our response to this crisis can do anything to get people to think about their individual behaviors in any way i mean does it change the way people think about public emergencies. You know, I, I, again, I don't I think people will go back to business as usual personally, like psychologically, that's just what we do. But there are a lot of folks who are wondering does a global emergency like this change our the way we think about something like climate change or respond to messaging from scientists and public health officials. So all of that is to say How will emissions bounce back? Are there factors that will structurally change the way the economy works? Or will we go back to doing what we did before? Either of you want to unpack that?
2: So I actually think there are a couple ways to look at this. One is from the big government perspective. So what China is going to do is fire up a bunch of really dirty plants and dirty manufacturing to try to get back their supply chain position. And so that is going to bounce back their emissions significantly. That's not what we want to have happen. We want it to be the opposite, which is, okay, we need to then not do that, but instead invest in clean energy that is already cost effective and easy to invest in, and that is credit worthy. So, there there is this need to try to immediately jump in to save industries that are in trouble and instead we have to do the opposite as Fatih Birol made clear in his LinkedIn post um the other dynamic of course is that our government leadership is really concerned about getting reelected and these folks are not thinking about it from a climate position at all. They're thinking about it from jobs and economic growth. And so I think that is what we have to to look at, too, is how do we construct a narrative about economic growth that, is, that connects to climate mitigation? And we have all the tools to do that technologically.
1: Yeah, I, I definitely think that this is a moment where people have been coming together and they have been respecting their government, you know, Uh, Sort of role more than they have in the past. I don't think this is about climate, although we can, you know, we all like understand that the climate is changing. It's really more about the role of government. And I think through this pandemic, there's definitely a lot of legislation that should be passed, right? I mean, this is the perfect time to pass a gas tax because we need more money to fund transportation initiatives, whether it's moving to mass transit or just repairing our roads. And we need more social services more than ever, right? I mean, all those people who we've traditionally said don't have $400 in their checking account are suffering right now. And you know the social safety nets were not in place to help them when restaurants and bars closed and lots of other things occurred, right? And so to me, like putting in climate-friendly infrastructure is just about creating a new compact with all of the people that live in this country, right? That is what the Green New Deal is really about, right? For instance, remember when the polar vortex came through the Midwest and people's houses were so poorly insulated that they couldn't keep their temperature above 55 degrees. We should pass another 10x of the weatherization program and get all those houses weatherized. These are a, There's a lot of things that we could do to reduce carbon emissions permanently that look and smell a lot like being responsive to What the population wants right now.
2: Exactly. And create jobs and continue to move clean tech forward.
1: Okay. Y'all have
0: pushed us seamlessly into the third topic, which is about a green stimulus. Uh, Could it actually happen? What could be in there? You know, economies around the world are in trouble. We have just pressed the pause button on economic activity because that's the only way to deal with the pandemic, to prevent even greater economic catastrophes. And the question is, does it give us this opportunity to revisit growth in a new climate-focused way? And the jury is certainly still out. Catherine, you mentioned Fatih Biral's piece, preaching that presidents and cabinet secretaries should use the situation to step up ambition to tackle climate change. You know the IEA is influential and that stuff starts to trickle its way through policy making. So I want to think through the politics, the reality of the politics when we consider what the US might do and then maybe fantasize about what should be in a green stimulus. So if we think back to um, the uh, stimulus package after the 2008 financial crisis, Catherine, we got important tax credits, we got a loan guarantee program, we got some really important things kind of stuffed into this bigger package. Um, What happened there? And is there the potential to do that as members of Congress and the administration figure out how to shore up the economy?
2: Yeah, so we did get a lot of projects done. We it should have been a much bigger package, but we did what we could. I think the president and Congress were not aligned. And so the Senate uh, was, was trying to prohibit Obama from getting a huge package done. They bailed out certain industries, like the banking industry. That was one of the most unpopular bailouts ever. And right now, this would be a you know potentially very popular piece of legislation because everybody is suffering together in, in this crisis. So I think it needs to be a big package. They're talking Talking about a trillion dollars, but of course everybody has a different view of what this should be. And the president is talking about bailing out cruise lines and airlines and giving everybody a thousand dollar check while other folks are trying to think, all right, how do we make this more about infrastructure and getting people back to work when we're able to get back to work? And also making sure that we have the social safety net that we need for folks who are really hurting from those industries. So if you can give a buck to a cruise line and it's not going to go to a person who worked at the cruise line, it's going to go to the company. So, you know, how do we deal with payroll and making sure that people who were laid off or who could get laid off would not be? And so there's this this issue of balancing that with what could we really get done if we think really big about what to do with a trillion dollars? Are clean energy companies
0: and associations and the folks pushing for carbon reduction efforts and, and clean tech focused recovery efforts. Are they getting creative about this or is it still too early, you know, to, 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 to change direction? I mean, is it going to be like, Hey, let's put tax credits in and let's get some other loan program, or are they molding messaging based on these kind of new efforts that are unique to this pandemic recovery?
2: I think people do what's easy to get done. And so the tax credits have been tried and true. So I think that certainly the solar and wind folks are focused on that and making sure that those tax credits can extend and hopefully we could get storage and all those other technologies included in that. And those are structures that we know work and we know drive projects forward. Um, And I think that things like I've mentioned the National Climate Bank or some kind of a fund, uh, not necessarily, I mean, could be a loan guarantee program, but that's a slightly different construct that has had its own set of issues. Um, So I have a feeling it may not necessarily be super creative because in times of crisis, it's very hard to think outside the box. It's easier to put money into things that we know work. Uh, So I don't know how creative it'll be, but it may be a larger influx of funding than we're used to. Jigger, what would be a thing that would work today
0: that would get capital flowing and get projects built faster when the economy starts to recover? Is there a policy or a set of policies that you think are the most important?
1: So in general, I agree with Catherine. You really want something that has already been done before and you want to 10x it, right? So, so for instance, the weatherization program, we did weatherize a million homes under the Obama stimulus, but there's like 12 million homes to go. And so we should actually figure out a way to get the other 12 million done right And that would be a lot of money. So um, so I think that we should do that and we actually have all the infrastructure in place to do that already. We just have to 10x the amount of money that goes in there. Um, but the same thing's true with gas stations, right So we already have pilot programs at USDA that add, Blender pumps for ethanol, but also electric vehicle uh, fast charging infrastructure to existing gas stations. Right, the gas stations have to opt in for the money, but once they do, they can. That's again a, a, a program that we could 10x, you know, pretty quickly. I think there's lots of other programs in the space as well that we could do. And those programs probably look a lot more in the construction and building space. So, for instance, the uh, Department of Energy has a great program, which they've been uh, running right now, that helps to figure out how to get structured, insulated uh, panels and and modular construction permanently into the construction sector. So, what we found is, is that since the 2008 financial crisis, we're still millions of homes behind um, where we should have been. And so that's why you have such a big affordable housing problem is that we actually physically don't have enough homes built. And the, the you can build them faster and cheaper so you can make them more affordable through this sort of modular construction. And oh, by the way, it's much easier to make them net zero as well. So I think that there's a lot of these kinds of themes that I'd be pushing uh, because it's something the government already knows how to do. And then you're just throwing a lot more money through it.
0: So, Catherine, we have an administration that could care less about this stuff and, in fact, is trying to dismantle as much of what you have both talked about as possible. And then then when it comes to an economic bailout, it has floated the idea of propping up oil and gas producers. Now, in Congress, we have seen this slight shift among the GOP to the middle. You know, they're starting to talk about climate change a little bit. So the door appears to be open for them to consider some of this stuff. As we consider these political dynamics on the right, does it open up any doors possibly for getting some of this passed? Or uh, will will they fall in line behind the administration's thinking?
2: Well, the Republicans may very well fall in line with the administration's thinking. I don't think the GOP is any more to the right. I mean, the GOP is completely aligned with Trump for the most part. But you have Nancy Pelosi who has an enormous amount Of power and who's been able to negotiate the first two phases of this coronavirus stimulus very effectively. So I think what we're going to look to is the House, because the House is going to be able to put something and hold tight to hopefully a negotiation in a phase three stimulus. And if Pelosi and Schumer can be aligned on what that will look like, then you know they're going to be able to get a lot in a bill and prevent some bad stuff from getting in in the Senate. So I think that's what we need to look to, not to somehow the GOP becoming woke on climate, because I don't think that's what's happening at all. I think they're worried about their jobs. I think they're worried about losing votes. I think they're seeing that there, there are hundreds of thousands of jobs that are going to be lost because of this economic crisis that you know is caused by something out of everybody's control. So I think that's what they're looking to and the more that we can convince them that what we want to get in it, it isn't about climate but is about economic growth, the better off we'll be.
0: We've floated around a bunch of ideas already so some of the ideas may make it into the answer for this question, but what would a really well-constructed comprehensive climate-focused stimulus look like? I have been following progressive Twitter. And, you know, those folks are all talking about integrating the principles of the Green New Deal into an economic stimulus. Um, not a lot of uh, detail construction yet, but still, I think there's this like belief that uh, this is a unique opportunity to continue to push Green New Deal messaging. And I mean, it, it may be a good opportunity for messaging for sure. Uh, the question is, if practically we could get some of that stuff done, what should be in that package beyond the the simple stuff? Who wants to take a whack at that first?
1: Well, again, I mean, I, I focus a lot more on what the government already does, right? So for instance, the USDA has already got a number of programs to help farmers. Farmers are actually on the front lines of this. If they change their practices to increase soil carbon... You're talking about gigatons of carbon that can be sequestered in soils and, oh, by the way, make the soils more productive with less fertilizer, right? And so that would dramatically reduce emissions. I separately think that, you know, figuring out what to do in CCS, you know, carbon sequestration, and storage, and figuring out, you know, how to support those things are critical. Because at this point, I don't think we're going to mitigate our way to zero carbon. So part of the way that we get to our goals is we have to start taking carbon dioxide actively out of the air. And guess who really needs help, you know, and who's be perfect for that, the oil and gas industry. So to Catherine's point, support their salaries by saying, we'll support your salaries if you shift your entire business to figuring out how to get carbon dioxide out of the air.
2: Yeah, I, I agree with Jigger. I think we need to ramp up programs that work that are already in existence, like weatherization, maybe uh, 1603 grant, which is in lieu of having the tax credits, having a grant program,
1: put a- Refund,
2: refund. Yeah, have a bunch of money in that- set up a climate bank, set up an investment fund that is easily accessible and doesn't have as many restrictions as a loan program office does. Um, I mean, there's just so much we can do with the tools we already have.
0: Okay, so before we all go back to our Zoom calls and our sweatpants and homeschooling our children, or in my case, putting them down for a nap, or trying to at least, uh, let's talk about free electrons here. Catherine, what is yours this week?
2: I love every year when the League of Conservation Voters, LCV, comes out with their scorecard. And what they do is they score members of Congress and the Senate on their climate and environmental votes. And it's pretty interesting this year to look at how people are doing given a number of things. One is that there aren't a lot of environmental votes to score, especially in the Senate. Um, And so what they were using was a lot of judicial nominations and how folks voted on those to score different uh, senators. The other thing is that a lot of members of the Senate were running for president and weren't available for votes. And so if they did not go onto the floor of the Senate and say, I would have voted this way and this way on these three things they were given negative votes on climate. So there are some that were a little odd in the way they came out on score. For example, Cory Booker had a fairly low score compared to his usual, and that's only because he wasn't available for votes and didn't make statements. That doesn't mean that he isn't good on climate issues. But it was really interesting to see who is scoring the highest, who has scores of 100, who, who are the lowest scores, and it's, it's worth digging into to go to the scorecard.lcv.org.
1: Jigger, what's yours? So there were two really big announcements this week that no one covered really because of the coronavirus. But uh, one was that Oklo submitted the first combined license application for an advanced fission plant uh, for their Aurora powerhouse. And it's also the first nuclear, you know, power license uh, that's been submitted in over 10 years. And it's the first one that's been privately funded. So, you know, kudos to Oklo for getting that uh, accomplished. It's a pretty big milestone. And then the other one was, and I don't know how to pronounce this company's name, but Osiaco, uh, O-S-S-I-A-C-O, O-S-S-I-A-C-O uh, has been flying under the radar screen, but they came out with this incredibly cool inverter that integrates residential energy management, solar, and EV charging all in one unit that's only 5000 bucks. So I can imagine that they're going to be uh, doing pretty well here going forward.
0: So I've got two quick ones. One is that I've been following on social media some of the short-term reductions in pollution as a result in the stalling of uh, economic activity. The most recent one I saw was in Venice, where you know there's massive drop in nitrogen uh, dioxide pollution, and the water in the, the Venice canals is super clear, and it hasn't been that clear in decades and decades. Um, in China, of course, you just saw extraordinarily drops in air pollution. And I, I now see some research coming out looking at what the short-term health impacts have been and the number of lives that have been saved. Uh, and the, the, the takeaway for me is that... It shows just how much work we have to do as a society to continue to drop pollution levels. I mean, we had this idea, particularly in the U.S., that we're so advanced and we've solved the problem of pollution, and, and we really haven't. And when you look at some of these extraordinary changes in air pollution, and water pollution when we halt economic activity. It's not to say that we should halt that economic t- activity. It's just to say that there are still plenty of options, technological and economic options that we can use to continue to drop those levels of pollution.
1: I totally agree. Uh, we actually have real health care costs that are not sort of just carbon prices, but real health care costs from burning fossil fuels, and they should be counted. The second
0: is, uh, I just saw this uh, tweet storm from Astrid Atkinson, who's the, uh, a former Googler and uh, the CEO and co-founder of Camus Energy. And she talked about how, as a startup, they are trying to navigate this world of Zoom calls and all working isolated. And it got me thinking, you know, uh, I have no idea if this will work out or not, but I would love to hear from... Other people running businesses of all stripes, startups and large companies, maybe even I know that there's a lot of people who are interested in energy who don't even work in the energy industry, who listen to this show, maybe you are running a company or trying to scale something, or running an executive team, and you're finding it really difficult to do so I want to know about your strategies for coping. How do you how do you deal with a drop in business? How do you manage your employees? How do you grow your company? How do you prepare for the future? So if you want to send some ideas, send them via email to postscriptaudio at gmail.com or send me a voice memo. You can just record it right there on your phone, and then you can email it to me. And we're going to start to collect some of those stories and you know, figure out if we've got something there. So. We'd really like to hear from you if you have uh, ideas on how to manage through this, manage your business through this.
2: Stephen, that is a great idea, and I would just say pro tip, take a look in the mirror before you get on your zoom call just just a quick check uh, from someone who found out <laughs> the hard way what it's what what not doing that looks like. <laughs>
0: I I'm the person with one of those uh, uh, <laughs> devices that block my camera. So I'm the person who shows up to the Zoom call with a black screen, and I ne- I never show my face. I'm just so used to recording myself remotely <laughs> without looking at people that I mm-hmm. it's, it's it's hard for me to show up and and show my face.
1: I have forced people to remove their tape, so you better not be at a Zoom call with me anytime soon. (laughs) I feel like, I just feel like you get more done if you can read people's facial cues. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Somehow I'm able to communicate with both of you without us looking at each other, though. Maybe we should change that. Maybe now that I'm on more Zoom calls, I'll get more comfortable and we can start looking at each other.
1: Oof. Well, I think Joe Rogan actually, like, Films his podcast, right? And yeah, then yeah. Post those on YouTube. A lot of folks are doing that. They're putting it on YouTube. Yeah,
2: yeah. No.
0: <laughs> 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 That's going to do it for us. The Energy Gang is a co-production of Postscript Audio and Green Tech Media. Ingrid Lobet is our senior editor. Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw are my co-hosts. I am the executive producer. Thank you so much for listening. I hope people are staying safe out there, staying sane, too, while in your homes and or your apartments. And, you know, please, if you're still, like, moving out in the world in a major way, please reconsider your activity. It'll go a long way to stopping the spread of COVID-19, and, you know, you'll, you won't be putting lives at risk. So um, please consider how your behavior impacts others. If you want to support our show, give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. You know, you you might have more time on your hands. So just go over there and it'll take you two seconds to give us a a rating and maybe write some words about why you like this show. Uh, We can be found anywhere else you get your podcasts. So if you don't subscribe, subscribe everywhere. This is the Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions on the fast-changing world of energy. We'll talk to you soon. Stay safe.